If you're a regular Geeks Guide to the Galaxy listener, please rate and review us on iTunes or using the podcast app on your phone. We currently have 976 five-star ratings, and it would be great to get that up to 1,000. And so I want to give a special thank you to Durf Diggler, who just gave us this five-star review. Great for sci-fi discovery. This is my go-to podcast source for new and classic sci-fi. I've shared many episodes with my like-minded friends. Excellent, insightful panels and host. Keep up the great work. So big thanks again to Durf Diggler for that great review. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 477 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing William Gibson's classic 1984 novel, Neuromancer. And this will involve spoilers for everything in the book, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Matthew Kressel, making his 19th appearance on the show. He's the author of the novel King of Shards, and his short story Now We Paint Worlds was just published on Tor.com. His second novel, Queen of Static, is available now on his Patreon page over at patreon.com slash mattkressel. So Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. It's good to be back. The next up, we've got Teresa Tolucci, making her 12th appearance on the show. Her articles have appeared on Boing Boing and Den of Geek. And her short fiction has appeared in or is forthcoming in Strange Horizons, Weird Horror, Lightspeed, and Tor.com, where she also reviews books, TV, and video games. So, Teresa, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me again. You can't see it, but pretend I have a razor blade manicure just for the occasion. <laughs> nice. And also joining us today is Sam J. Miller, making his ninth appearance on the show. He's the Nebula Award-winning author of the novels Blackfish City, The Art of Starving, and Destroy All Monsters. And his short fiction appears in magazines such as Lightspeed, Nightmare, and Strange Horizons. His new novel, The Blade Between, is currently number two on the horror bestseller list. So Sam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me um, behind surgically implanted mirrored uh, glasses. (laughs) Man, you guys have all the cool (laughs) prosthetics. Okay, so let's start off with Matt. And have you tell us about your history reading Neuromancer? Um, yeah, I was thinking about this because I knew you were going to ask me this. I believe that um, my first encounter with Neuromancer was at a bookstore in Florida. We used to go visit my grandfather in Fort Lauderdale. And usually the first or second day when we got there, my father would take me to the bookstore and say, you know, I want you to buy at least three books, more if you want. And I usually get five or so. And I remember that I picked up Neuromancer um, probably because I thought it sounded cool. I hadn't read it. Um, You know, this was pre-internet days. So the only way I really heard about stuff was, you know, I go to the bookstore and pick something up. Or maybe someone told me about it. I don't think I I knew about Neuromancer. And, um, yeah, it was – I remember being really, really excited about the computer aspect of it. Um, I was a huge Tron fan. And so the idea of like entering into a virtual computer world was super exciting to me. And I remember also being really fascinated with with the the drug aspect of it, even though like, you know, I think this was 1987 when I encountered it. So uh, maybe 88, probably 87. And uh, no, I had not done any drugs at that point. Um, But I I remember like, oh, this book has like drugs and computers in it. It's like, you know, (laughs) it was like really hitting my buttons at the time. 
And so did, did you read it just that one time or did you read it a bunch of times? I read it that one time. And then as I got older and more into like writing um, fiction and things like that, I, I, I started to read uh, all the other Gibson stuff. You know, I went back and read Burning Chrome and, and uh, you know, Count Zero, Mona Lisa Overdrive, all that stuff. I think I've read every almost everything that Gibson's written. Um, I wouldn't say I'm an expert in his stuff, but, um, no, I, I just, I did play the video game. They, uh, the, the C64 game, which was like the coolest thing at the time that like a book that I, you know, I thought everything I encountered in, in the bookstore was completely obscure, probably because like a lot, a lot of my friends weren't big science fiction readers. So like I was really the only one who was encountering this stuff. So then when there, there was a game that came out that referenced this book I had read, I was like, it blew my mind. I'm like, Oh my God, you know, a Neuromancer game. That's amazing. The game wasn't that great. But <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. And how about Teresa? What's your history with Neuromancer? <laughs> well, um, I dated a guy in the nineties who met at an industrial club and he was really, he was a self-styled computer hacker himself. Um, so he lent me his copy of Neuromancer and I kept the book and I lost the boyfriend and went on to really read and love pretty much everything from William Gibson ever since. Um, I was never a huge science fiction reader, but I loved the prose, it just pulled me in, especially in the short stories. Um, I might have read Burning Chrome and those stories before I even read Neuromancer, so I kind of read him in publication order. And I think that just added a lot to the book itself. Um, I wouldn't say Neuromancer is my favorite of his. It's a great one. It's iconic. But I'm definitely a big stand for the Bridge trilogy instead. Um, Virtual Light, Adoru. All Tomorrow's Parties, those are my favorites personally. But yeah, it was it was good to revisit this one. And then how about Sam? What's your history with Neuromancer? So with very on-brand ineptitude, I read Count Zero before I read Neuromancer, and that's the sequel, so that's dumb. Um, and I loved it, and I just love the world I'm in when I'm reading William Gibson. He's just—it's—it's it's so it's so interesting that um, so much of his fiction is about entering the virtual, um, and and that's the experience of reading him is he sucks you in and makes the virtual feel real in the same way that it is for Case um, in Neuromancer. Um, so yeah, like Teresa said, the prose is just so perfect and sharp and amazing. And so, um, I read Neuromancer not long after, and I've read it several times since then. Um, you know, there's some science fiction writers who I adore who don't make me envious, like, Ted Chang is my favorite. I'm never going to be Ted Chang. I love Octavia Butler. I'm never going to be Octavia Butler. I never feel envy or anger uh, uh, or, or insufficiency when I'm reading them. Um, but William Gibson makes me feel like jealous. Like that's so close to what I want to do and I could never get there. Um, but I just love the experience of, of, of reading him. Um, and, and Neuromancer is such a brilliant sort of like, I don't know. It's, it's science fiction, but it's so many things. It's like the great, the greatest noir story ever. The, the sort of way that it hits the noir story plot points is, is so perfect. Um, 
I also I'm not sh- I'm not sure that it's my favorite. I think that um, while I love the Bridge trilogy, I think um, Pattern Recognition is my favorite. Um, uh, and I'll talk. We can talk more about sort of like the arc of William Gibson's career of like the things he wasn't good at that he got good at, and the things that he was good at that he is no longer good at. Um, but yeah, my relationship with Neuromancer is uh, tempestuous hmm. and intense and troubled and um, exhilarating. Well, you notice, Sam, that he was 35 when he wrote this book? That's super interesting. That makes me feel a little better. It's not like a Citizen Kane where it's like, oh, this dude was 25 when he made <laughs> greatest greatest movie ever? F him. Well, that is a lot younger than I am now, so makes me very, very angry. Um, I, ju- I just recently reread, um, right before the panel, actually, his... I believe it's his first published short story, Fragments of a Hologram Rose. Yeah. And it's just so perfect. And it's like, you know, this was his first story. Like, what was he doing before this? I mean, it's That's so, that guy. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I just, I think he's brilliant. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, we had him on the Fantastic Fiction, a KGB series a couple months back. And, you know, even just chatting with him, it's just, you know, there's such a mind there. It's such a, such a brilliant person. Yeah, I mean, in terms of what what was he doing before? I mean, it's and it seems like from what I I read of his biography, I mean, well, it seems like he spent a lot of his childhood just kind of like locked in his room reading science fiction, and then spent his kind of early young adulthood traveling around randomly to countries where it would be cheap to live and doing lots of drugs, and also not getting drafted. Yeah, you know, I think that was a big part of his uh, early life as well, and I think why he ended up in Canada. Ultimately, yeah. So it's uh, yeah. It is it is interesting that he um, you know, like came out of the box so fast with these like really with this really polished prose and and all this knowledge about all these esoteric subjects and yeah, obviously he was just really really gifted. Um, I have kind of an interesting. This is the first time I've read Neuromancer. Um, you know, sort of when I was growing up, my, my parents are both scientists and they're very like, they're very into like golden age, you know, sort of humanistic, uh, you know, techno optimistic, uh, science fiction. And so, you know, they weren't really that into the new wave and they weren't really that into cyberpunk. And so, uh, they had, they had read Neuromancer and kind of like, eh, you can skip this one. Mm-hmm. And I did read, uh, I read, I, I read at least the first couple stories in Burning Chrome. And, um, uh, I remember liking them okay, but, uh, especially when I was a teenager, I, I really had an issue with, uh, like stories where there was lots of made up slang and made up, uh, jargon and, and techno babble and stuff. Uh, I, I found a lot of the things really just, re- you know, really hard to understand what was going on. And I found that really frustrating. Um, I guess Matt was sort of saying that he didn't really understand. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like, so I think one of the strengths of Neuromancer and also possibly its weakness is that it's so dense and cryptic and filled with this, as you said, jargon that sometimes you don't know what's going on. And I think that it works in the sense of it pulls you in. It's an immersion technique, but at the same time, there's a, there's a feeling of um, disconnectedness with what's happening. So it's like, and, and I think that's intentional on Gibson's part. I think he wants us to feel kind of um, overstimulated. And um, 
you know, so there are times where I'm like, I'm totally with him. I, I'm not sure I know exactly what's happening, but I know he's going to take me in for a soft landing, you know? Um, and, and I think, you know, when I first read Neuromancer, everything I had read before that was like golden and silver age SF, you know, um, like, you know, Arthur C. Clarke, Larry Niven, you know, um, Asimov's, all that stuff. And then so when I encountered Neuromancer, I'm like, what is this? You know, what this is like completely different. And I and I think, you know, Gibson talked a little bit about wanting to, you know, he, he had like like you said, David, that he he kind of reacted against that techno utopianism with it with his work. Yeah. Although I have to say, like at this point, having read a thousand science fiction novels, uh, I, I didn't find this. To, to be uh, that hard to follow, uh, except for a, a couple of things maybe we'll get to. But, um, you know, getting into it, I was like, and, and I wasn't sure I was going to like it, um, sort of, as I said, but I was really blown away by the first, the first six chapters I just absolutely loved. Uh, yeah. I thought that they felt incredibly fresh, even given that this book is, you know, about, you know, about the internet written 40 years ago, you know, written in 1983 on a typewriter. Uh, it still feels fresh and exciting and vibrant and, um, you know, bracing, uh, uh it, it, reading it, it now. It not only, it not only feels fresh and, and bracing, it feels like, I don't know, I still feel like there are story ideas that pop into my head or when I'm developing a novel and trying to figure out what's going to happen. There are still things that I think of and then I'm like, shit can't do that. Neuromancer did it already. It's actually something that I, I experience a lot with William Gibson of like, that's a great idea that I can, that I, you know, was going to use or, um, you know, I, I just think it's, it's, it's so, his ideas are so um, dense and exciting um, that, that it still feels like, this still feels like something that if you could, if you were to rip off half the things in this book and use them in a book now, it would be amazing. Like it wouldn't feel yeah. weird. It wouldn't feel weird. Yeah. And they're good ideas. And there are also tons of, I mean, like every page, there's some like clever, you know, there's some like, Oh yeah, that's a really good idea. I mean, it's just absolutely stuff, possibly overstuffed and we can get into that with ideas, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, um, but so I want to get back to Teresa too. So Teresa, uh, kind of what was it like for you going back to, the beginning of Neuromancer? Going back, it was unusual because I've been reading just a lot of straight up horror lately and just not in this genre at all. So it was a nice kind of break. I think it was definitely escapist. You are thrown headlong into this world of crime and flashing advertisements and space rosters <laughs> and gothic resorts and clones and it just every there there's so much here and you know in some ways revisiting it again cuz it's been a very long time I'm like mm, this does seem like a slightly younger man's kind of book in a certain way I found at first where I was definitely um parts of it did feel a little dated to me but I think that's because this book is so iconic and so many other properties in film and video game, other books have uh, played off of it. You know, that this like they and they take the window dressing from Neuromancer, but don't really get into the depth that he does. And then once I got more into the character and the function of the plot, um, I, again, I was just really pulled along and absorbed in it all over again. Um, but I definitely agree that 
some parts of it, you know, I had totally forgotten and were big surprises, some of these twists. And other times I was a little confused by what's going on because Gibson does just drop you in and doesn't really hold your hand as much. Um, but I definitely appreciated the William S. Burroughs feel of it all, actually. And I think that was a big influence on him and his writing of this. So I kind of appreciated maybe more than when I read it the first time and was just confused by some of the narrative techniques he was using and the way he kind of structures a world and and structures these reveals of information, which I think really um, are extremely clever and continue to play well. Yeah. Well, let's, let's just set up the basic plot off the bat here. So uh, our protagonist is Case, and he's a, a hacker. Uh, you know, he, he breaks into uh, corporations and banks and stuff and steals their data. And in this world, you, you do this by connecting like electrodes to your head. And, and so you're really inside the, the virtual world. And he, uh, had ripped off some money from one of his employers and they had punished him by, uh, I don't know, doing, doing something poisoning him, I guess, mycotoxin, uh, so that he couldn't, uh, he can't jack into the internet anymore. And so with his main means of, uh, uh, making a livelihood, uh, stripped from him, he's, uh, stuck doing, uh, sort of low level crimes in Chiba City, which is, I think, in Japan and is in big trouble and is wanted by all sorts of gangsters and stuff like that. And, um, and this woman named Molly comes to him and she has sunglasses kind of surgically implanted in her head. And she says that she's working for this guy Armitage and they want him, they want to hire a case for some mysterious mission. And, um, and that's sort of how the book starts out. Um, I don't know, Sam, is there anything else else you, we should set up about the, the basic setup here, right off the bat here? Oh, well, I mean, it's, um, he's, you know, in true noir fashion, he's been hired to do a dangerous job by an employer he doesn't fully understand um, and who turns out to be, you said at the beginning, we're going to be spoilery, right? Yes. This is like one of my spoilers, favorite things about spoilers the book. Go is that it's this book is really like a love story between two AIs who are prevented from uniting um because it would violate it would it would uh, enrage the Turing police which is this amazing concept that Gibson uses occasionally of the idea that there you know there would be limits attempts to limit the intelligence of AIs and so these two um artificial intelligences are manipulating humans to circumvent the the safeguards that have been set up to prevent them from uniting and creating some new crazy weird game changing thing um so and then they're in out then they're in outer space and then there's <laughs> there's there's rastas and then there's lots of murder and a clone ninja correct me if i'm wrong but wasn't it that winter mute wanted to merge but neuromancer did not or did or is is that not correct cuz like i think no, that's, neuromancer that's correct yeah, so it's like neuromancer was like no i'm my own identity now i don't want to merge and then winter mute's like no that's my that's my reason, reason of being, right? So yeah, um, it's a it's a toxic love story. It's yeah. a, no, no, <laughs> it's a story I, of, of yeah. Um, yeah. And speaking of Teresa, speaking of things that like you forgot, I I like that. Um, I, I really loved, and I completely forgot this. That okay, so at the beginning, you know, this is a spoiler. Obviously, we're spoiling. Um, 
Case's girlfriend, Linda Lee, is murdered, right? So she's yeah. she's dead. And he's like, he's clearly um, wounded by this, seriously. And like to the point that like um, Neuromancer like fucks with him by showing Linda Lee. But then later on, we see that they have like created a copy of Case's um, mind. And then you see Case Case's copy and Linda Lee's copy, like their digital copies, like living together with Neuromancer. And I was like, oh, that's that's really sweet, but kind of horrific at the same time. And I was like, you know, his his copy, his digital copy um, gets to be with the the woman. But he he decided not to stay there because he, he recognized that wasn't real. And I, I was like, that's really bittersweet and clever and, and something that uh, I hadn't remembered at all. OK, so so Matt, that's like the second to last paragraph of the entire book. So, let's, well, that, then it's definitely a spoiler. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's, this is like, but well, let's try to go in a little, like, a little more, more sequential order a little bit. But, um, but so I said that um, the first six chapters absolutely loved that pretty much everything about them wouldn't change a thing. Um, how do people? Uh, but Teresa, you said that like the book sort of off the bat kind of struck you as sort of a young man's book or, or something like what. Well, yeah, yes and no. In some way, I guess because the room, you know, and I'm, I'm saying this from, you know, some different, you know, positions, I guess, where it's like, well, the, the noir trope has so often been like a sad sack, younger, down on his luck man with a dead girlfriend, you know, scraping by, you know, we, we have met this kind of character many times before. Not saying that it's good or bad, just you know, it's it's a trope for no. a reason. Okay, I, I I'll definitely grant you that. Is that I I think that you know a lot of the characters in the book I found either bland, like Case, or kind of one dimensional. Um, and so I, I that that was like I, I did want more character development for sure. You um, know, and then you know, then I guess for me. One of the big drivers of the plot is, you know, when Molly Million shows up. I mean, instant like eyeball kick, like literally, like <laughs> mirror, you know, mirror eyes, and she's a killer. She's, you know, Razor Girl, Steppin Razor. Like she has all of these um, amazing street names, you know, and she looks like Chrissy Hind in like the '80s, but like, punk, like even more punk, like really arresting character and then you know you're really liking her and there there is stuff to her background that again makes her like a tropey kind of noir gun mall i mean i think some people said that might be where her name comes from and it's mm. probably not her real name but you know molly gun mall um you know she has her own very sad past and there are things where it's like the way she's described and you know just how frequently she gets naked for case and you know the, the one thing that really made me like roll my eyes was like there's a scene where case and molly have to go to i believe it's london and get um dixie um from you know his stored personality to help do this big basic heist yeah actually let's, let's just let's just explain that so so there's sure. a so case case had had a mentor in his hacking days named mccoy polly who had uh oh, oh and so in this world there's something called there's something called ice in intrusion countermeasures electronics uh which is how um 
computer systems protect themselves from hackers. And then there's something called black ice, which is uh, ice that's so badass it can actually kill the hacker uh, as part of the defense. And so, so this McCoy Polly guy had been killed by black ice a couple times, I think, but had been kind of resuscitated. You know, his heart had stopped, but he had been resuscitated. And so, um, I'm actually a little, I'm a little unclear on <laughs> to at what point he got the nickname Dixie Flatline, but he, he got this nickname Dixie Flatline. <laughs> and, and at the point in the story that we pick up, he, he's totally dead, but his, um, uh, like brain patterns are preserved on a ROM that's stored in this, um, you know, this, this computer, uh, or, in, uh, it's, it's like a, me- is it a media company or something? Like Sense, Sense Net or something? But, uh, but anyway, so, so that's what Teresa's talking about. There's this, this character who only exists as a computer simulation on this ROM that they have to go retrieve. Okay. So, so Teresa. Uh, yeah. Go. Yeah. And this is like really my most, my favorite chapters, I think, where I, I love a good story of like getting the gang back together again mm-hmm. or like, you know, when you're meeting all of the the Ocean's Eleven characters and how they're going to meet, you know, come together yeah. for this one big job. So, yeah, yeah. But there was this scene where, like, I, I definitely, like, paused and, like, rolled my eyes where Molly is using her body and Case is spying through her eyes to kind of get into this um, security place, whatever it is, like this media company. And so she knows that he's there in her head. So the first thing she does is like squeeze her own boobs. Hmm. And I'm just like, really? Really? Hmm. That does not. No. <laughs> I'm like, no, this is not, not liking this part right here. Like, that's just ridiculous. But, you know, like I keep getting torn on if I find Molly to be kind of a bit of a cliche character or she is kind of cheeky and I think she has more personality and, and style than pretty much anybody in the book. She's also the only character um, of the major characters in this book to pop up again later. She's one of the main characters in Mona Lisa Overdrive, um, which I think speaks to the fact that like, she's the one who's like actually interesting and dynamic and that was, was worth revisiting um, much more so than Case. Yeah, and and she was also the first character that he wrote for because she was in Johnny Mnemonic. And that's the, the Johnny boyfriend that she lost that she keeps talking about, which was another amazing story. Yeah, and, 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 I, and if people yeah. don't know, Johnny Mnemonic is a short story that um, that Gibson wrote before Neuromancer. Um, but so, okay, but, so Matt, but Gibson, ahead. yeah, Gibson said, you know, and talking about the last paragraph, I'm going to talk about the last line, if that's right. If that's <laughs> We haven't even talked about the first line. If we're really going in order, we have to talk about the iconic first line. All right, but then I'm gonna I'm gonna forget my thought then. I, <laughs> okay. But no, you all right? You want to do the first line, and then we'll do the last line. That's fine. The sky above the port was the color of television tuned to a dead channel. Never forgot that one. I think that has to be the most iconic first line of any novel, any science fiction novel ever. Like I can't think of another first line that really sticks in my head like that one. Yeah. And and I always imagine static, like white and gray and black shifting static. But I I thought William Gibson actually said that he intended a sort of like silver gray kind of color in, in older TVs. I don't know if anyone knows more about that. Well, you know, now when I think of a dead channel now, when I had first read it, I pictured blue, like a bright blue. 
yeah. because that's how cable has changed. I didn't have, you know, I wasn't thinking snowy gray static of when the book was written. I was thinking of when I was in the 90s and I read it, my dead channels were blue. It's interesting that the the, the colors of uh, dead channels went from actual colors of the sky, right? <laughs> from gray to blue. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, I think he, in one of the um, versions that I have, he talks about that in, in the introduction about how that, that color changed. And, you know, he was talking about that he, he couldn't even anticipate cell phones, <laughs> but it, you know, it, it's still, um, it's still powerful regardless. Yeah, you know, I read a recent interview with Gibson where he was talking about specifically how he writes the first couple of lines. I think it was a series for The Guardian, and this was around when his most recent novel, or second most recent novel, The Peripheral, came out. Mm -hmm. And he talked about, you know, writing and rewriting the opening of all of his novels, but Neuromancer in particular. And I think what I like about that one that resonates is, yeah, like, is the sky gray or is it blue? Does it matter really? Because at the end of the day, you're thinking about a kind of technology that is obsolete. And here's like a blank slate. And now here is what we're living with. There, there is nothing dead. Like here's what is alive in this world. And we're going and it, to immediately throw you into it. Yeah. And it brilliantly situates you in a world mediated and, and shaped by technology. Absolutely. Like what is, like, what is the sky? It's television. Yeah. Yeah, and it's also the idea that it's it's a dead channel. So it's like something that that like you said Teresa was there but it's already obsolete. And I think that um you know we we saw we see this in a lot of cyberpunk after that and and you know contemporary with that and this idea that you're in a future where technology's already obsolete where where stuff that we would consider advanced is already old. And I, and I find that like like dec not just old but decaying. Yeah. Before we get, I do want to give you, Matt, a chance. You said you wanted to talk about the last one. So let's just, let's just do All right. Let now. me see. Let me see if I remember it. Okay. So I think the point was, I think the last line was that he, he never sees Molly minions again. Right. Yeah. Um, and so Gibson said that the reason why he wrote that line is because he did not want to do a sequel <laughs> and then immediately was asked to do a sequel. So, um, he couldn't put Case in it, or he could, but then he couldn't write about Molly. So I think that's why he's like, you know what, Molly? He probably said, yeah, Molly's a more interesting character. Let's put her her in. Yeah, and I also think he wrote about some of her experience already. Again, in in Burning Chrome, the mm -hmm. title story, Burning Chrome, yeah, has as its center um, a puppet parlor, which is a brothel, which is again like Molly. You know, it could be this cliche and this this trope and you know, there, there's something about like the portrayal of a, a, a sex worker, but it's very matter of fact. And it, you know, she feels like it was very much her choice to work at a puppet brothel and rent out her body and fragment her mind as best she could to pay for these implants to her eyes, her nails, her reflexes that will make her stronger and employable, more employable. You know, so giving her that power and, you know, so much of this novel is about fragmented personality and who has access to your your inner life and your and these trails that you leave in your data when you're in a world like this where everything is connected. So it's like there's one thing of like 
you know, capitalism run amok and pushing people to the margins and the hard choices they have to make and the ways they have to live with their decisions. Uh, but then it becomes this other philosophical question as well, like this other branch of who is Neuromancer and what, you know, what is its goal and who is Case and who is Dixie? You know, it's again, like layers upon layers. It's just astounding that Gibson makes it all work out. Well, let me ask you, because, you know, like I said, I, I just absolutely love the first six chapters, which is about the first hundred pages. And then the last 200 pages, I really found a bit of a slog. And I'm just curious if that's just me or do other people feel that way? So Sam, do you, how did you, how do you feel about like the first half versus the second half of the book? Yeah. I mean, I think this whole book is to me really exciting, really engaging. Uh, I think it moves fast and breaks things. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and, uh, and, you know, I, I, there's, there's no real point where I'm like, okay, this is, this is dragging on. I mean, I think that to me, if I have a problem with Neuromancer, um, or a thing that I think he figured out later that he doesn't know how to do here is make you really care about a character and, and identify with them. And I think Teresa said this really well already of just like getting, feeling their yearning and, and having them feel like real, vibrant, three-dimensional characters. And so even if I'm sort of like following characters who are in many ways pastiches, honestly, I feel like besides Molly, the only characters who feel really alive and hungry to me are the AIs. Um, you know, I think that's something that he figures out in later books. But for me as like plot, like this is like, this is like plot 101. Like this is how you do a plot. This is how, this is, this is the lessons of like the great golden age of science fiction and the great Raymond Chandler noir um, moments that he's sort of, that he was, that he grew up on um, that like, this is just like, fast moving beat after beat um and and if if there's some things that aren't quite great you're you're sort of like pulled pulled along so fast you you if you notice them they don't really throw you out of it yeah i mean I, just to jump off of that i i think that uh like you said sam um it's moving so fast you don't necessarily notice the deficits in character development and i think that's why Pattern Recognition is my favorite Gibson novels because I think he just does such a great job of uh, of of characterization in that 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 we're with um, uh, God what's her name uh, Case all, Case Case the whole <laughs> also way Case yeah also, also Case, case it's spelled differently yes case, <laughs> case all the way through and um, you know it just like it starts off in pattern recognition with with her talking about like how she's squicked out by the the michelin man because he looks like a maggot and then like, it's like right there i'm like i'm totally with her like i i you know to this day i can't look at that without thinking that but um no i think i think uh you don't really notice some of the the deficits because it's moving so quickly um i i think that like dave that you know i agree the first six chapters are brilliant um, I didn't think that the the rest of it lagged at all. I I, I just think that um, some of the maybe some of the immediacy. I, maybe that's not the right what I'm thinking of. Like I think the first six chapters were building stuff, and then the rest of it's like stuff's just happening. And um, like one of the surprises for me coming back to this was I forgot how much of this took place in space. Like I remember yeah. I remember. <laughs> when I read it the first time I, I was like, Oh, they're like, I, my memory of it was like, Oh, they were only in space for like a chapter or two. And <laughs> like, no, it was like a, it was, it was a big chunk of this. And, um, 
so that was that was surprising to me and um just kind of casually thrown in there like like yeah we have orbital uh you know cities where the rich go and hang out and you know there's rastafarians living up there and uh you know they're flying on these on these uh shuttles between stations and you know it reeks like weed and it's like oh yeah like like it was just stuff that i had forgotten that um that kind of just carried me along because it was just so creative and and inventive and um you know even to this day like like just reading it however many years it is later uh and seeing it fresh i think that was enough to propel me propel me well through. well yeah so let's let's just explain that so there's this big uh space station called freeside which is basically like las vegas uh space station and there's this family that owns it and they have their own section of it it's called the villa straylight and uh the the scion of this family, the main one that we see, I love this name, is Three Jane Marie France Tessier Ashpool. So you know she's super <laughs> rich. Um and um and and I like all this I mean all this stuff in the last two hundred pages in terms of plot I liked. I just felt like it got kind of repetitive with the hacking and climbing up and down ladders and stuff like that. And, you know, before we started recording, um, Teresa was saying that, you know, usually she's on the podcast to talk about horror novels, and this isn't a horror novel. But I really felt like the last third of this basically is a horror novel. It, re- it really felt like um, The Shining to me or something. It's basically like a, they're basically they go into a haunted house and they like, like stuff kind of starts seeming sort of dreamlike and this stuff, you know, these visions from their past get dredged up and um you know, and, 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 and the, yeah, like the, just the geography of the, uh, the Villa Straylight seems really surreal and it just seems like gigantic and kind of, you know, uh, like MC Escher-esque to me. Um, yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. And that's one of the things that I kind of forgot about the book too. Like they, they build up Villa Straylight as like a gothic castle that's basically run by moneyed inbred clones um it's horrifying and you know i have a whole side tangent about the rich up in space this week i mean we all know the news (laughs) you know and that's one of the things that's just so timely about this novel well why don't don't you just explain Teresa, for people listening in the future what's what's going on this week for people listening in the future jeff bezos went to space this week and richard branson and Richard Branson and isn't Elon Musk going sometime soon? I mean, it's a thing for the the billionaires to be like the Tessier Ashpools and go up into space because it's there. But then I feel like this is like a kind of a result of it. Once they own it, they don't want it. They seal themselves like they crawled off the dump of a planet Earth to seal themselves up into a luxury resort on space that has really become a tomb for this dynasty of generational wealth that keeps getting passed down. And it's, you know, it's hard not to imagine that being kind of an unintentional endgame of the Bezoses and Musks. Like we, we see this again and again in, in science fiction, books, film, everything. That's what they do. They isolate themselves from everybody else, from the have-nots, to try to keep themselves safe and become this horrible, inbred, M.C. Escher-esque mega-corporation that 
are so big, you don't even know what other, how many other companies they own throughout the world. You know, it's like we continually talk nowadays about, you know, oh, I'm going to boycott like this company, like, like this week it was like Frito-Lay, you know, I'm going to boycott Fritos because, you know, they don't treat their workers right. Well, okay, you could do that, but then, you know, they're owned by PepsiCo, which also owns literally like a hundred other different companies. So you'd still be supporting. And that was one of the things I loved about how they slowly bring uh, the Tessier Ashpools into the story. Case doesn't even think about them until he hears the name for the first time. Then he's riding the subway and he sees that ad for Freeside and he really looks at the logo on it for the first time. It's like, oh shit, I've walked past this a hundred times and never thought about it. So, I mean, so Matt, do you want to say any, so you said like you were surprised how much of this takes place in space. Like, what did you think about the way that the outer space stuff was, was depicted in the book? Well, um, I mean, just jumping off what Teresa said, I mean, I, I didn't necessarily get the horrific vibe. And I think, I think that might be because the last four years were so horrific to me. I think I've been kind of desensitized um, a little bit from, from some of the stuff, but um, I think that, um, you know, Gibson was definitely playing a little coy with some of like how all this stuff works. I mean, I think there's one reference to like the center line light that goes through the, the middle of the cylinder. I think it was, they were talking about an O'Neill cylinder or something. Um, I mean, are you asking me like about the, the, the technology of it or, or? Yeah, well, cause I, I felt like there was a lot of detail about the, like, like it seems like every, um, every clamp and gasket and thing is described exactly what material it's made out of. And like, well, that's just Gibson in general. Yeah. I mean, I think that he'd like, what country you know, did all the gaskets? So, someone from? can't <laughs> walk into a room without him describing like the make of their shoes and, and, and like what kind of tie they're wearing and, and where they got the their jackets. On their jeans. Yeah. Yeah. Like there was, I forgot which novel what it was. I, I think it was from Fez. It was the one after pattern recognition. It might've been spook country where there was like this hitman, this killer, and he checks into a whole, hotel room and then he, he's like remarking on like the type of um metal that they used on the faucets in the bathroom <laughs> and and i was like well i mean maybe maybe this like you know he's a sensitive killer that's cool but it, i just see it just seemed like well, gibson lo- loves to d- the, loves to just describe every little detail of the, 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 every, the part that, that i i think this is right like when the one of the, the when they meet ashpool and he's just like murdered his like clone daughter and she's like lying across the bed in a pool of blood and it's like he sat down on the leather chair with squared off chrome feet <laughs> you know right <laughs> yeah maybe i read too much into some of that stuff because i'm like oh well he's just you know he gibson definitely has his quirks he loves his wrist watches and bomber jackets from various armies around the world but you know, in in a way, like it made me think about how connected all these economies are to one another, and yeah. gave me a little hint about that. But I mean, in the beginning of Neuromancer, when I hadn't read them for a while, I was like, okay, Italian leather shoes with, you know, in a mid-century Swiss chair <laughs> with I mean, I, I, sourced yeah. from Fez. Like, I don't know. I was just like, okay, okay. I mean, I wonder if he's just trying to like 
draw our attention to how like materialistic the society has become. Like he's just everybody's just so like brainwashed by capitalism that the first thing they see is the material that someone is wearing, not the person. To me, it's like this is a facet of his genius as a writer is to root you in the real and the detailed and atmosphere and smell and sight and, and yes, <laughs> manufacture point and, and <laughs> uh, provenance um, that, that as he's describing these incredibly bizarre, weird, um, technologically um, futuristic worlds, he's, he's making it feel really grounded and lived in and scuffed up um, and, and dirty. Um, and aged um so so yeah i think it's that's part like it's the essence of his prose it's 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 at the heart of his sort of like world building is to make the 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 bizarre feel not banal but but like hauntingly familiar and i felt like just just having the rastafarians in space for 1983 like i don't know how how much stuff like that had been done previously in science fiction but i felt like you know that was kind of it was inter- it was sort of it was, I, I felt like maybe that was um sort of a, a novel sort of um depiction of the future for that time this is my one okay so one of okay i probably said this more than once like this is my one problem i've had like five problems um, <laughs> but 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 like sort of my overall like i love that that one of the things that i love about william gibson is how um interconnected his worlds feel as we've said before that there's like you know the real politic of russia and japan and china and germany and the united states um and 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 also and you know wealth and poverty um that that's throughout his books they're always they're always really diverse there's always like lots of people from lots of different backgrounds it's about the obscenely wealthy and like the gutter trash and how they stand equal <laughs> before the the eyes of god and the reader um but the one thing that's always missing is queerness. Like there might be a, there might be a little bit of it here and there. There's usually like, there's one, I think it, it might even be pattern recognition, right? Where she thinks that this one guy is gay through the whole um, book and they're best friends. And then in the end she finds out he's not, and then they hook up. Um, uh, it's, it's something that like there's, there's, there's queerness in very small, very spare brushstrokes. Um, uh, that, that, that's the only part of his worlds that I wish were different. Um, but it was like the, it was funny, like what people are talking about with, um, how influential Neuromancer is because, you know, like all the stuff with Zion and, and everything, you know, having seen the Matrix before having, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. read Neuromancer. And I, I thought I basically knew what happened to Neuromancer, but actually reading it, I was like, oh my God, I didn't realize just how much of the Matrix, just how much of Ghost in the Piano. Keanu Reeves, man, uh, Johnny Mnemonic, The Matrix. Yep. There's the, it's all Keanu Reeves. Trinity, Trinity in The Matrix is basically Molly Millions. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And and you know, I know David, a you're a big thing. fan of The Expanse, and I feel like there there was like I was reading through. I can't remember exactly what it was, but I was like, oh, The Expanse totally took some stuff from this as well. Um. Or, you know, influenced by it. Yeah, I mean, um. I mean, that I used to, you know, again, as someone who really loves Virtual Light and the Bridge Trilogy, the Jessica Alba show, Dark Angel, absolutely ripped off Virtual yeah. Light. The Bike Messengers, you know. Oh, Julie, oh. Julie Mao, oh. Julie Mao from um, 
from the expanse reminds me of molly million millions um but you know we were talking about like also stuff that gibson anticipated now you know i was thinking like you know drones like like you know today it's like everywhere but you know in 84 i don't think that was really a popular thing uh you know misinformation cyber terrorism and you know this this story actually has aliens in it like it, there's this yeah. like reference at the end where the ai um that the winter mute uh neuromancer merger basically encounters an, an ai from alpha centauri which i was like oh <laughs> I completely forgot that as well. I'm like, that's kind of cool. Like, I I almost want to, you know, read that story. Um, well, and I, the space Rastas were kind of interesting. I definitely forgot about them. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. I feel like I'd like to hear, like, like uh, Tobias Bakel maybe speak on it better. You know, I think of him in particular as a Caribbean SF writer who writes about Caribbean characters on reimagined future islands and diaspora in space, you know? So I was like, I like that they were there to kind of round out a picture of just here. Here's not just people from, you know, like Russia, China, America, like these, these hegemonies, like space can be for everyone, which I kind of liked, but it, it also just seemed like, well, here's some just, zany window dressing we're going to kind of throw up in there without any other commentary really other than to do something yeah. cool like here's some cool shit some yeah. cool hand wavy shit yeah well well i i mean i i liked that they were there i mean they felt very one-dimensional but like so many of the, like i said so many of the characters felt one-dimensional that i mean i think that's an issue that goes through the book but yeah like if you want you should definitely read tobias Bakel's uh zeno wealth series if you want um, you know, Caribbean characters in space that are, you know, a lot better developed than, than you see in Neuromancer. <laughs> um, but, but what Matt was saying about, um, I mean, but I think the real, cause, cause Gibson gets a lot of the details wrong, right? Like, obviously, like, you know, like hacking a computer system doesn't involve riding a flying giant shark you know like it like, doesn't <laughs> you're doing it wrong David. <laughs> doing all my life only in the 90s and and and, <laughs> and gibson i mean in his foreword he mentions you know like the payphones and the modems and the uh, mechanical printers and like like the stuff that hasn't aged well but like i think that what what the real strength of this book is and jack womack talks about this in his afterward at least that's in the edition that i read is that like more than any other science fiction book that I can think of, Neuromancer feels like it conveys what the future is going to feel like. You know, like you read this book and you're like, it feels like it was written in 1999. And you're like, oh, wait, no, this was written in 1983. Like, yeah. you know, it just so captures that feel, even if a lot of the, you know, the technical details are, are, are you know, are off or whatever. It, 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 it's, it almost feels like there was something in the air, right? Because... So if you saw Blade Runner and then you saw, you know, you read Neuromancer, you'd be like, oh, one copied the other. Right. But actually, like Gibson said that I like he went he, he went into the theater. He saw 20 minutes of Blade Runner. He's like, oh, shit, they're going to think I ripped this off. And I, I don't think that um, Ridley Scott actually um, ripped off Neuromancer either. And, and then, you know, you look at something like. The movie Tron, right, which is has that kind of immersive virtual reality world, and it, it was almost like there was something in the air in the in the early '80s, like this 
it, you know, it's where the, the, like you said, David, earlier, like the techno utopianism went smack dab against like, you know, the, the excess capitalism of the eighties and like, and then, you know, they're like, well, what's going to happen with this future? And, and it, you know, it took a few geniuses to really map that out. And I think Gibson was one of them and he really, you know, he didn't get everything right, but he got a lot of it right. And, um, I, you know, it's, it's just, it's really amazing just to go through it now, like you said, and say, oh, this was, this was written in 83. My God. Well, we were talking about this in an earlier episode, but like, there's no, there's no computer stuff really in Blade Runner, right? I mean, there's no internet, there's no hacking, you know, like, you know, like, like Neuromancer, that is, you know, that is where this is going that separates it from something like Blade Runner. I mean, I know that you love right. Blade Runner so much that. Well, I mean, I think it's it's in the background of Blade Runner. I mean, you know, you have like video phones and and things like that. But yes, it's it's not like uh I mean, you, you have his like um basically early Photoshop machine that scans the photos and things like that. So I mean, that you know, it's 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 there, it's in it's in the background, but it's not the the focus of it um like like it is in 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 Neuromancer. Um but I mean, even in Neuromancer, I I it's like it's like almost like the hacking it's it's not the way it's depicted today where like someone's like it's unix i know this and they go three, you know, three, <laughs> three sentences on a keyboard and they're they're into like the the nsa you know um it, it's more of it's more of just like like he says like this consensual hallucination and you know you know what what he calls ice the intrusion countermeasures electronics is like you know it's it's an analog for like you know active firewalls that we have today you know um you know content delivery networks that you know adapt to uh to changing threats um so it's it's you know it's it's a metaphor for it and i think he was kind of smart to do it that way because it's like you could just say yeah well well that's what it is it's it's a consensual hallucination it's a metaphor for what's going on you know, on the lower layers of the system. I mean, that's actually how the internet works. It's just um, abstractions upon abstractions upon abstractions. Like, you know, it starts with the electricity on the wire and then you just keep going up layers upon layers and then eventually, you know, you get YouTube. So it's it's like, um, I, I I don't think he was like wrong, quote unquote, by by doing it that way. I mean, it's kind of a BS game trying to spot where a science fiction writer got it wrong. Like, it's all yeah. wrong. It's all yeah. always wrong. Like, you know, 2001, like no, like, no matter how hard the science fiction is, no matter how, like, you know, how much we love it, like, you know, it's all coming out of a moment in time that is, right. um, you know, whatever. It's, it's, it's like even the idea of like pe- recreation in space is a product of a time when the space race felt like it was going to continue forever and that we would see expansion in space of like, we're going to have like, you know, living quarters and buildings and cities. And there is a future in space, which isn't really the case now in the sort of like post-Soviet era where it's like, companies using space to profit off of and for telecommunications and you know that it has military and 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 um capitalist functions but it's not like a place where tons of people live and hang out and it's it's not it's not the future we have yeah like in the book 
they talk about, you know, oh, I was either going to go to Europe or I was going to go to Freeside. You know, that's not. Yeah. And it's 2033, I believe. Neuromancer. Yeah, well, I mean, but do you agree with me, Sam, that like, like cause you read like Philip K. Dick or something and it's like set in the year 2300, but you're like, this is the 1950s, you know, and like, like pretty much all science fiction, you read it and you can tell exactly when it was written. But I feel like Neuromancer, like I said, it feels like it was written in the late 90s, not the early 80s. And I feel like there's something really special about that. Yeah, totally. And I think that that's a part of that comes down to his prose and the way and how like, you know, even the weirdest of word choices, like, you know, we talked earlier about the sort of slang in it. Um, to me, it doesn't feel like slang. It feels like a really particular use of language where even the most bizarre word choices make a kind of sense after you think about them. Um, like, I don't remember if it's a neuromancer or where, but there's a, he, he was the, first person to ever talk about like how like when a car went by the sound dopplered passed and how you you can just immediately like i've seen this used elsewhere since um just that like that effortlessly communicates that sensation of like the way this the pitch changes on sound as it moves in relation to your ears um so yeah he just it, it feels so stark and vivid to me it's part of why he drives he makes me so hmm. angry jealous <laughs> um because because that's something that i would love to be able to do and and that he does and in a way that makes his prose feel really always of the moment but then also just in relation to what matt was saying i mean that um i feel like one thing that this book kind of like gets wrong quote unquote that pretty much all science fiction gets wrong is that is is like not able to see just how ubiquitous and commonplace technological advances are going to be right like this book still presents the internet as something that like only like super special super cool people will be able to access and not like take it that step further to be like oh wait no even like just average, like the most average person will all be on this, you know? And it's like, that's a really hard leap, I think, to, of, uh, of speculation to make is like, you know, there's something that seems so amazing to us and realize like, no way, everyone's going to have this, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't particularly like, I, I didn't read through this and say, Oh, well he got that wrong. Like I don't, that's not how I read fiction. Like even of its time, it's more of is, am I effectively conveyed through this world um, that he's created? Like, is it a complete world? And it, it absolutely is. And, you know, I, I think what I, what I meant with, with the hacking stuff is, is just that I think the metaphor works. Like he was, I think he was vague enough to describe in the way he described it, that I was like, yeah, I, I'm going to roll with this in this world. I think it, it absolutely works for what he created. You know, and does that it have it? Yeah, does it have any basis in reality? Probably not, but uh, you know, it it for for what it did, it worked. Yeah, and I mean, for me as someone who doesn't read a lot of science fiction, I mean, I read some, but you know, definitely not as much as other panelists. Um, I find Neuromancer to be extremely accessible to anybody because it is like a classic Raymond Chandler story with these immersive things, you don't have to know anything. You don't have to know about like the Gernsback continuum and golden age of science fiction. You know, I mean, granted coming at it now, you're going to know about the matrix and cyberspace and cyberpunk and all that stuff. But you really can go into this and just get pulled along into the story. And that's a testament to his prose. I mean, we, 
everyone talks about Molly's mirror eyes. Gibson himself, I just read like this long like listserv post from like the early 90s where he's like, oh, I have no idea if they're like under her eyelids or implanted like on her skin, like sunglasses outside of her eyes. He's like, I don't know, because if I try to think about how much that works, you know, or how that would work and affect her tears, it doesn't matter. It's just something, again, like a metaphor that partitions her off. From Although, her private self. There was a line that said that her tear ducts are rerouted through her salivary glands, which I thought yes. was a cool detail. Yeah. Um, I actually just had a couple other, like, it, just in terms of conveying a world through just random details, I just had two examples I wanted to mention. So there's a line where Case says, what's that smell? And Molly says, the grass smells that way after they cut it. <laughs> and he's like, never smelled mown grass before. I thought that was Yeah, pretty. that's yeah. pretty. that's pretty amazing. Um, and then there's a part where the Finn says, it's a horse, man. You ever seen a horse? And Kay says, saw one in Maryland once. Yeah. Just yeah. Conveys, yeah, like, yeah. How that horses are basically extinct. Yeah. He said, um, I was reading something the other day where, uh, he likes the idea of conveying like a huge amount through, through like one sentence. And I think he was inspired by Escape from New York when, uh, uh, God, help me with the character's name. Uh, Snake Pliskin. Thank you. Snake Pliskin. Thank you. Snake Pliskin, like one of the, when they're like hiring him for the job, they're like, you did that Russian thing, right? And then it was like, Gibson was like, just imagine this entire other thing that happened in the background. It was just conveyed with one line. And I think like those two examples you gave, uh, Dave, like do that extremely well. And he, he does that continually throughout. So it's like, it's it's this incredible um like painting of what's going on in the background that just fills my head and like sometimes i find myself just while i was reading i was just imagining you know all these other things happening in the world that that's not going on in the moment cuz he's just so good at it yeah he also in that same guardian article talking about first lines he talked about exactly that except um you know like a little throwaway line to reveal a bit about a character in relation to uh, Get Shorty, you know, mm. like the opening sentences of Get Shorty. I'm like, yeah, and then this guy walked in and, you know, I hadn't seen him since that night that so-and-so got his coat stolen at, at the bar in Reno or whatever. And it just paints this picture of a night and event more. And that's, again, I think you get that a lot more with Molly than with other people. But then maybe on the flip side, from a much darker side, one of my favorite characters in the book was uh, Riviera because he was terrible. Mm -hmm. He was awful, you know, like, but fascinating to watch. And I think a lot of horror comes from there for me. Like before you even meet this guy, Molly's like, I read his profile. He's fucked. Like he is a fucking bad person. And I'm, then you meet him and you're, and that's when things get really disorienting. Like when he first appeared, I was like, what, why are there fish swimming around now? And mm-hmm. then I'm like, Oh, now I get what he could do. Ooh, Ooh, no. 
This is, this is also this is also one of my favorite plot moments of like the the sort of like magician's wonder that William Gibson does of like suddenly like ta-da, here's something bizarre and incredible. In the end, when there's the fight with the vat grown clone ninja, um, <laughs> and he's like who's been bigged up as this like like stone cold, unkillable badass unstoppable and Riviera manages to blind him by shooting him in the eyes with lasers and you're like oh shit Riviera got the guy who can't be got um but then it's like no he's like how will you blind the ninja says what how will you dis- how will you like trick me with your illusions now um and then gets him really effortlessly so it's just like this great moment of like badass characters who've been well drawn put up against each other in ways that are like astonishing and fun and surprising and like make you go ooh in a sort of like movie blockbuster kind of way exactly and it's like you know again these tropes the console cowboy the street samurai you know the the blind samurai is totally a trope yeah and <laughs> love <Yes>. it <laughs> Um, and I just, and so Riviera, he can create hologram illusions. I just want to explain that if anyone is, is a little confused about that. And uh, he is also a sociopath. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, so I don't know if everyone had the Jack Womack afterward in their edition of Neuromancer, but, um, I did. oh yeah, I know Not Teresa, me. I know Teresa did. <laughs> um, yeah, I did too. Okay, cool. But so, so yeah, I got rid of the copy that my ex-boyfriend gave me a long time ago. I upgraded <laughs> to the 20th anniversary edition. Um, but so let me just read. So Jack Womack says, um, oh, wait, sorry. Let me let me read first. In the intro, Gibson says that he was fueled by, quote, a smoldering resentment at what the genre I'd loved as a teenager seemed to me in the meantime to have become. And then Jack Womack says, not since the days of the new wave in the 60s had there been such consternation over and misinterpretation of a book and its significance among those who should know better but somehow never do. And... I wish they were a little bit more specific about what the issues were on both sides. But does anyone have any uh, 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 picked up any uh, any information that sheds any light on why Gibson uh, was disillusioned yeah, was with he, science fiction? What was or, he mad at? What book? What book did he hate? <laughs> Dune. No. Well, I mean, wasn't wasn't the Gernsback <laughs> Continuum like his? Like that's the story was his disillusionment with with kind of the techno utopian visions of um you know the golden age yes you know and and so i think you know maybe like he showed so clearly in neuromancer that he saw that runaway capitalism was was not going to bring us to this utopia and was alienating us and um and and that's why he wrote these stories you know uh Maybe he didn't see the future, like you know, because you said that he was uh, his his history before he was a writer was, you know, doing lots of drugs and couch surfing and trying to avoid the draft, and and maybe he saw aspects of. I mean, I'm right now I'm hypothesizing, but may, maybe he saw aspects of you know human society that you know capitalism wasn't helping and in fact hurting, and and maybe maybe he was like, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna write about you know the underculture that that maybe these utopian science fiction authors of the 60s and 70s um, weren't really uh, addressing. Yeah, I mean, plus, you know, coming up in the, the 80s, he is a fan of punk rock, and that's kind of anti-everything. Um, you could see it in, you know, I think uh, Screaming Fist, which was uh, 
again, these names that he comes up with are incredible, like Villa Straylight and Screaming Fist and Dixie Flatline. He's so good with just listening to words. Um, you know, that Screaming Fist was a punk song from this like Canadian punk band. So he like threw that in there. Um, you know, I think, you know, there, there might be something to it again, like growing up in a post World War II era in America and seeing the after effects of that, that Russia, China, Japan would outpace us militarily, technologically. And there's this line of like anxiety and exoticism for all of that with like this, the punk and cyberpunk kind of under there being like, well, you guys are all focused on dirigibles and shiny robots and shit like that. Well, I've got like people getting their pancreas nuked from space <laughs> to, you know, not be able to access the internet anymore. Like, you know, I, I'm going to sit down and tell you like a William S. Burroughs, like a naked lunch kind of science fiction. Cause that, that wasn't very popular at the time. That, that wasn't what was filling these, you know, dime store science fiction novels. It wasn't William S. Burroughs science fiction. The only thing I wonder about with that is that Gibson, he says he loved science fiction growing up and then it had become something he didn't like in the meantime. And I feel like all the techno optimism stuff goes back to the 40s, 50s. Mm. So I wonder if there is, I'm just curious if there's something more specific he's talking about that happened in the 70s, I guess, that he's, late 70s that he's, that he was really bothered by or? Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like this is one of the older science fiction books I think I've read. <laughs> I wish he was on fantastic fiction again. Cause then I could ask him that we could ask him that question. <laughs> I was actually curious, Matt, cause you know, Ellen Datlow really well. And my understanding yeah. is she was really instrumental in Gibson's early career, publishing those short stories. Yeah. In Omni yeah. Magazine. I believe, Omni. I believe she was his editor at Omni. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have to ask her more about it. She, she did tell me about it a while ago. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. Um, uh, my former coworker, uh, David Hartwell, uh, he had worked with Gibson a lot in the eighties and, and they knew each other very well. And I remember like being abandoned on a sofa by David as I'm sitting between William Gibson and Jack Womack <laughs> at, at an author event and just being like, I am just going to be quiet and listen to these <laughs> two gentlemen talk about Kentucky over <laughs> my head. Um, William Gibson is is maybe the only science fiction writer I've ever been too starstruck to talk to at a science <laughs> at, a, at a Nebula Awards of like I think I said hi my husband forced me to like shoved me at him um, <laughs> but I, that conversation was minimal and immediately forgotten by both parties. <laughs> well, I, I admit, like personal side note, you know I. You know, again, Neuromancer was introduced to me by an ex, you know, did not see him for a number of years. But then, you know, I've become a big William Gibson fan so much so that um, there is a group of New York area fans who I've met through Twitter. And we all go to like the front row of his event and we'll sit and, and chat with him afterwards a little bit. And I just remember being at like a Union Square event for pattern recognition and being up there talking to Bill and looking out in the audience and then just seeing that ex-boyfriend for the first time. And I'm just like, like through the hair, I'm like, yes, I'm going to stay up here and just keep talking for a few more. Even if I might be an idiot, just like, that's it. You dumped me. I, I took your author. 
was that at Barnes and Noble? Yeah, Barnes and Noble. Oh, I was at. I was there. He signed my copy of Pattern (laughs) Recognition. I don't. I don't think I knew you then. Um, No. Or maybe we were acquainted. Maybe maybe not. I was hanging out with one of the uh, one of the people from the the Gibson Twitter Collective, uh, Rupa, my friend Rupa. Oh, do you remember? I want to be part of that group. (laughs) Do you remember when he comes to town, Sam? Right. Do you remember when someone got up and and criticized Gibson's use of the word rumination? No, I think I probably blocked that out. Anytime someone says I have more of a a statement than a question, I immediately cringe into a black hole. No, no, actually, no, no, actually, I'm misremembering. What what he said was, oh, you should have used the word rumination. And then Gibson says, when I think of rumination, I think of sheep. And then he like goes to the next question. It It was such a great response. It was yeah. He, he is delightful at readings uh, yeah. when he goes on tour, which, you know, he seems to have books out pretty regularly. Props to him for writing so regularly. Yeah. Um, his his author events are always really fun to attend. Uh, I, he's a great he's great conversationalist. I actually think I was at that event, too. But um... <laughs> we were all there. We were all there. Wow. Sam was there. And Sam F me. Was there. F me and F my life. You were, you were in like the cafe and you were like nearby. It's totally possible. Um, yeah, because I think pattern recognition started with a beautiful, dis- or he read a beautiful description of being above Union Square, like a Union Square. Yes. Hell. yes. Wow. You know, that, that stuck with me. And I'm like, you know, your audience, you know. Well, I, I guess like that, that was like one of the maybe the final thing I'll bring up here is that is that William Gibson did become this like celebrity in a way that I mean, Jack Womack says uh, in every generation, there's room enough in the American popular mind to admit only one science fiction writer. It was Bradbury for a while mm-hmm. and then Asimov. Uh, and then he says and then, quote, that guy who writes Star Trek slash wars. Um but I guess I'm I'm curious to get your opinion on this, all of you. Is is William Gibson like the last science fiction writer to become a household name? Has anyone no. become em- like reached that emphatically level? Emphatically, no. No, you think not? N.K. Jemison is almost there. That's what I was gonna say. Yeah, Ch- childish Gambino lyric is pretty. Is as close as you can get, I think, to you know iconic uh, household name status. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, I, I didn't hear about the <laughs> about the lyric. Um, but yeah, so um, but you think that if because if I I mean like if I like when I was in my MFA program, for example, you know the people who didn't read any science fiction, they'd be like, oh yeah, I like Asimov, I like Gibson. Like those are like the only, those are like the only science fiction writers they knew, you know. And I wonder if uh, yeah, if today that would they? I guess maybe they would know N.K. Jemison. That would be cool. I think they would know N.K. I I would like to think maybe they would know John Scalzi. Scalzi, yeah, Scalzi's big. I mean, you know, N.K. Jemison has her her master class, you know, and like I'm, I didn't even know about it. like yeah. I'm scrolling through Facebook, it's like master class by N.K. Jemison. <laughs> I'm like, oh my god, this is amazing. So does everybody does because yeah, because I see that a million times a day, but I thought maybe that was just the algorithm knows what that I'm that I like science fiction, but do do, do lots of other does everyone see those things all the time? I mean, I mean, I feel I get the Neil Gaiman one a lot. For whatever reason, but yeah, uh, my, I mean, my, my boxing trainer is in like the master class with NK Jemison. So, you know, cause he also writes. 
So, I mean, I'd say that's a pretty huge level of popularity. I, you know, I think with William Gibson, I, I, and again, it might be because of my age, because, you know, coming up in the nineties in like the goth industrial scene, we did kind of play with a lot of the imagery of cyberpunk. I mean, there were cyberpunks, but then there were cyber goths, which were <laughs> the pictures I have of that era are very embarrassing with lots of neon hair and plastic and oh, goggles. Man. Need to share them all. Now. <laughs> all that stuff. I mean, it's it's it, you know it was like the Matrix before the Matrix came out, and then when the Matrix came out, then it got even more popular and more ultra. But you know, it's funny. So William Gibson was definitely like had a big kind of cult of personality there, which I think he would really laugh at because he is not. You're never going to find William Gibson in a goth club. Like even no. when he was at his youngest, doubtful he would be at a place like that, and. You know, but he does talk about, you know, very specific kinds of like, like military style, like this fetishization of weird objects like wristwatches and, and again, bomber jackets and certain kinds of jeans and material like, and furniture. Like he's, he's a design nerd. And I think that kind of makes him a bit of a cipher and mysterious. So it's like, he's cool. And like, he kind of invented the matrix, but he's low key about it. <laughs> you know, he, he likes this stuff, you know, this kind of stuff. And I think that gives him a mystique and an, an enduring appeal, you know? Um, but then when you group him in with other writers of the time who were writing, you know, a lot of them were writing cyberpunk and then, some of them were writing splatterpunk too. Like I'm, I'm thinking of John Shirley in particular. Then you've got like uh, Louis Shiner, um, you know, some really interesting ones. Looking at a, oh George Alec Effinger, When Gravity mm-hmm. Fails, another really great, you know, Middle Eastern infused kind of cyberpunk series. Um, people just keep bringing Gibson up again, you know. Like he he's kind of like a gold standard for that kind of movement at the time. But, you know, I think time goes on. His his novels have drastically changed in focus and scope. Um, so he's still doing his thing and just being authentic to his voice and his. Interests, you know, well, well, yeah, let's let's talk about that, because I, you know, I haven't read any of his later novels, but my understanding is that they get closer and closer to the present. Yes. Um, and sort of what is, I don't know, what does that say when even William Gibson is like, ah, just writing about the near future is hard enough, let alone a hundred years from now. What is, what hope is there for the, for the rest of us? Well, the current um, trilogy of which there are two books written, uh, published um, the peripheral and agency is set in parallel timelines. One of which is like, very potential close to spoiler, all others. Potential spoiler, but yeah. No, it's all, this is all in the flap copy. Okay. Um, right. And, and the other of which is like at least a hundred years in the future, if not significantly more than that. Um, and is sort of like imagining like a pretty wild vision of like, um, the, the far, the future of humanity after the collapse that we're currently, um, bringing upon ourselves. Um, so I think he's, 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 he's finding things to be excited about, about the future. Um, I'm not sure they're entirely successful books, but, um, you know, um, I like, I like the peripheral more than other people did. I think I, I actually, I haven't read agency. I've had a 
copy sitting here for ages and have not gotten to it yet. I, I do, but I've read the Bridge trilogy like three times. Full disclosure, I've never read Count Zero or Mona Lisa Overdrive. You know, I, I love Neuromancer, but I just didn't feel like I wanted to quite go back to that world because it felt a little too, when I, when I first read it, it felt a little too heady for me. So I went to Virtual Light in, instead because it's the start of a new trilogy and was just absolutely absorbed into it. I loved, loved, loved like the big eyeball kick set piece at the center of it, which is a bunch of squatters. Mm-hmm. living on the Oakland Bay Bridge. Mm-hmm. It was gorgeous. So the way it was described, like Skinner's Room, like, you know, when I went to San Francisco for the first time and I, I read Virtual Light before I went and, you know, just think of the bike messengers and Barry and Gunhead and like the whole thing, like the North-South California divide. And then you get the second book, which again, has some crossover with Neuromancer. I love the uh, Simstim stars that they always mention. And he's been writing about them since Burning Chrome. You know, these pop stars who, like, like the first... They're like YouTubers, basically. Yeah, YouTubers, you know, but you're really watching things through their eyes. It's horrifying. Hmm. Um, You know, I I love that that just felt more prescient. And also David Bowie makes a cameo in Adoru. Which is so amazing. brilliantly done. So right? brilliantly done. Right? I think of that like every time I'm on an airplane and I'm like, why can't I upload a program where I'm biking through Venice with David Bowie playing <laughs> the music? That's the future I want. So wait, so so what William Gibson novel should I read next? Keeping in mind that I am more interested in the more science fictional, more into the future kind of thing. Uh, I mean, I, I would say that you know, objectively, most likely pattern recognition is probably his best novel since Neuromancer. I think it just really landed with a lot of people. But again, it, you know, it's not like far future wild tech. It, the September 11th attacks are really like the jumping off point for that. But I think he does a great job. Yeah. I personally... I I just personally love Virtual Light and Adoro. I would second. I, I think the Bridge Trilogy is the sweetest spot. Even though Pattern Recognition is my favorite, I also think it's his least science fictional. Um, and I think the Bridge Trilogy is the perfect sweet spot of when he's in possession of all of his powers at the most and <laughs> yeah. putting, bringing them to bear upon like a future that is like vivid and palpable and weird and wild and full of eyeball kicks and people yeah. you really love and care about. Oh, I feel I mean, so vindicated. Yeah. Thank you, Sam. Yeah, and he's <laughs> like, I think Gibson in in some sense is an anthropologist, and, and I think it's very clear in in the Bridge trilogy, just like these um focus on these on these different cultures and, and like subcultures and yeah, I mean the definitely finds its own uses for things. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> All right, so we're pretty much out of time. So do people have any, uh, how about Matt, any final thoughts on this whole experience of rereading Neuromancer? Um, all this talk of, of uh, the Bridge Trilogy books makes me want to reread them. I haven't read them in a while. Um, so, yeah, William Gibson, um, he's definitely one of my favorite science fiction writers. Um, and it's always awesome talking uh, about him and his work. 
Um, Neuromancer is great. You know, I think it was the first Gibson book I ever read, and uh, it was awesome revisiting it. And um, you know, I hadn't really thought about um, rereading Gibson's other books in a while, and now I think after this, I- I'm probably going to uh, at some point go back into the Bridge trilogy and and the others. All right, cool. Sam, final thoughts on Neuromancer? I love it. I love every weird moment of it. Um, this has been super fun because y'all have said a lot of things that made me like think really interestingly uh, and differently about it, even though it's something that I've read many times and thought about a lot. I'm going to have to look. I, I feel the William S. Burroughs vibe now that Teresa mentioned that, so I'm going to have to like dig into that. Um, so yeah, thanks for thanks for giving me a chance to geek out about this book I love. Yeah, and, and like I said, I ended up liking this more than I thought I was going to. And, and the first six chapters, I think, are absolutely unmissable. Like, I would definitely <laughs> say that everyone should read those. And then, you know, if you like them, definitely, you know, keep keep reading. But don't miss the first six chapters, for sure. Um, and so, uh, so, Teresa, final thoughts? Um, yeah, I, I was really happy to have this conversation, too, because it's been such a long time. I continually go back to, you know, a few of William Gibson's short stories and I recommend, you know, yes, read Neuromancer for sure. And if you like it, definitely go back and read Burning Chrome because he's never written short stories since. It's amazing and it's sad and it's frustrating, but that's just not his thing anymore. But they, you know, he's written some of the most, one of the most iconic first lines in a science fiction novel. But one of my favorite last lines is in, in Burning Chrome, you know, and I see her on the edge of all this ice and city and sometimes she waves goodbye. Like he just punches you in the gut with his prose. Like it's beautiful. So I just hope more people get a chance to appreciate him just on a, a sentence level. He will always pull you along. All right, great. Yeah, I'll have to go back and reread Burning Chrome now because, yeah, that does sound really great. Um, but so we are all out of time, so we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Matthew Kressel, Teresa DeLucci, and Sam J. Miller. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Thank you. Yay. Thanks, Dave. Thanks. <laughs> and that was our panel. So big thanks again to Matthew Kressel, Teresa DeLucci, and Sam J. Miller for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening. 